0: Oh, I am very excited this morning to be able to share with you a beautiful piece of art that I discovered um, this week. Are we up? Uh, there we go. The, the, next slide. There it is. Isn't that great? It's it's incredible. It's one of the most magnificent paintings I have ever seen. Well, what's the matter? You're you're not impressed? Uh, uh, do what? It's, yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah that's, good. that's good. I wish you were. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how about, how about this one, which, by the way, was painted by the same artist? It's a masterpiece, don't you think? Still not impressed. Okay, fine. Let me go back to that first painting, that, the eye. Let me fill it in. Here's the painting. Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci. And here's the second painting. Remember, I said it was by the same artist, The Last Supper, also by Da Vinci. You see, in examining a masterpiece, you might focus your attention on parts of the painting, as has been done with these two, the Mona Lisa and The Last Supper. But in the end, a masterpiece must be seen in its entirety to be appreciated. Here's something else to consider. As much as we may admire the the painting, we appreciate and praise the skill of the painter, the artist. I mean, you would not make your way to the Louvre in Paris, which is where the Mona Lisa is displayed, and think, wow, it is absolutely amazing how those colors just kind of came together to, to create such a magnificent piece. I wonder who found this. Now, when you see a great piece, you, you know or you want to know who created it, because this, the skill of the artistry points to the, to the artist. In fact, if, as you're making your way through a, a museum, you see, this, you see a masterpiece, you're overwhelmed, you're awed by it. You look at the bottom corner of the painting, or maybe the little plaque, you want to see who did it. Now, consider, I want to share with you this morning... One of the greatest passages of Scripture in the Bible. Are you ready? Here it is. Aren't you impressed? Oh, you, you need more. Okay, there you go. Faith. That, that helps, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. It tells you that this great passage is about faith. That, that narrows it down. I mean, the word faith appears uh, some to, or 250-plus times in the New Testament which means, are you ready? You just memorized 232 verses of Scripture in the Bible. Give yourselves a hand. You're not. Uh, uh, Why why not? Because you say, well, there's more to the passage than one word. You're right. So let me give you a little more. There you go. There's those famous verses that many of us have memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Great verses. And we should memorize them. I want to point that we should memorize them, as many of us have. Here's my question. Is that it? No. No. You see, these verses are part of a masterpiece. There's nothing wrong with studying the word faith and its 250 uses and and 232 verses in the New Testament. Fine. Do that. There's nothing wrong. In fact, I want to suggest that it's right to memorize verses. Memorize these verses. These are great verses. But it is incredibly important that we take words and verses in their context to see them as the masterpiece that they are, to look at what comes before and after so that we understand what the artist, here the Apostle Paul, is saying. See, I want to suggest if we just look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, as most of us have memorized it, we stop short. We miss the incredibly important verses before and after. For example, we miss verse... 10 where i want to suggest that paul takes us from examining the painting right up to the painter you, you see it's it's po- is it possible that much of the time we focus on the on the eye on me when i should be focusing on the artist for by grace you have been saved through faith And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Uh, Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, the the artist's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Folks, we are, we are making our way through Ephesians, and I want you to understand that it is a masterpiece. And, and we have been closely examining the brush strokes, better the quill strokes, that, that, that Paul used in writing this magnificent piece. But, but I have wanted to keep us focused on the piece as a whole. If we don't, not only do we miss the whole, but it's possible we might miss the meaning of the parts. Paul told us when he began this section that he was praying that God would give us the Holy Spirit of of, of revelation so that we would well, so that we would know God, the great actor, the subject, the creator, the artist, so that we would know Him more deeply. Specifically, that we would know the hope of his calling, the the, the glory of his inheritance, which happens to be the saints, and that we would know the surpassing, immeasurable great greatness of his power, which is at work in us who believe. He went on to describe that power. Why? This this is the (coughs) this is the power that raised Jesus from the dead that the power that exalted Jesus to God's right hand where all of his enemies are placed under his feet. Jesus has been made head over everything to the church. No, 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 don't miss that. This is a major step toward the theme of Ephesians so that all things might be summed up in him, in Christ, things in heaven, and, and things on the earth, so that He will become the fullness of everything, so that He will be all in all. And, and, and this power that raised Jesus and is showing Him to be everything, that same power is at work in you. Uh, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You were walking according to the dictates of this evil world system, according to the dictates of the devil, while you were even walking according to the dictates of your own sinful flesh as you sought to indulge its desires. You were dead, but but God, you know, the one who was rich in mercy and the one who loved us, the one who showed us grace, he made us alive in Christ. Not only that, he raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places so that His enemies, which are our enemies, are under our feet. They will ultimately be defeated. And we finished last week by saying this is all for the glory of God, for the the glory of of the artist. Olivia, would you bring me my water bottle right there? Thank you, sweetheart. I just actually wanted to see you. Thanks. Excuse me. We finished last week by saying that this was all for the glory of God. We were made trophies of His grace so that for all of eternity, for whatever ages might come, ages upon ages, we would be the visible display of God's magnificent grace. In other words, we were, that we would be masterpieces pointing to the skill and, and, and the grace of the artist this was incredibly good news. And in the middle of that description, Paul throws in this parenthetical statement, by grace you have been saved. And so now in verses 8 to 10, he elaborates on this salvation by grace. But but it's not not just verses 8 and 9. Those have, I suppose, rightly been described as the most succinct description of Paul's gospel. I mean, you can take those two verses and sum up the entire book of Romans, well, if you added verse 10. I suppose you could take and shorten that and memorize one verse, the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. But I want to remind us that Paul's succinct definition of the gospel actually goes from verse 1 through verse 10. We, we looked at verses 1 to 7 last week, one sentence, remember that in the Greek. And, and now we're going to look at, focus in on verses 8, 9, and 10. You see, it's then that we get the, well, the full gospel, where we have gone from the need of the gospel through the hope of the gospel to now the power of the gospel, which is supposed to be transformed lives. And all of this is going to take us back to the painter. To, to the artist, to the sculptor, to the, to the potter. We, we will be His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Memorize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but remember when you do that you're looking at the eye. But don't forget what came before and, and the purpose that comes after the, 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 the need is, we were walking in sin. The, the purpose is so that we would no longer walk in sin, which is what we were doing, but that we would now walk in grace, producing good works. In fact, Paul does this, verses 1 to 10, he does this with a literary device called an inclusio. He does this on purpose. They're bookends to what he's saying. We're supposed to look at it as, as, as a masterpiece, as a unit. We walked in Sin, but now no longer we walk in grace doing good works for the glory of the artist. Look at the outline of the text. The, he starts by telling us how salvation is accomplished, verse 8. And then he's going to tell us how salvation is not accomplished. And this is a message particularly for. Well, for our world, because everybody thinks salvation is accomplished precisely the way Paul says it is not accomplished. The painting doesn't paint itself. The, the, the creation does not create itself. The, the, the pot doesn't make itself. The masterpiece doesn't produce itself. Verses 8 and 9 tell us. And then we're going to look at how salvation then is is seen, or or we could call it the purpose and and power of salvation in verse 10. So, remembering the masterpiece, the full context, when we were dead in trespasses and sin, our merciful and loving God made us alive in Christ. How? How did He do that? Middle of verse 5, He dangles it in front of us, By grace. And and now Paul goes on to explain using three words that are most precious to salvation, most precious to us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Three words, look at them with me. Grace is that act of God in the life of the undeserving sinner. You see, He painted the need in verses 1 to 3. We were undeserving. It is His activity, um, uh, uh, graces, that, that we've des- defined as getting what we don't deserve. You see, last week, we saw that what we actually deserved was wrath. But, but in His mercy, He didn't give us that. He gives us what we don't deserve, grace. Beyond that... Grace is the ground upon which God saves us. It is his undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor toward us. Now, to be saved is to be rescued from what from our sin and what our sin rightly deserved. We have been saved from sin We have been saved from its consequent judgment. You see, this, folks, is the presentation of the gospel. So often we present the gospel as saying something like this, Jesus loves you, and He'll really make your life better. And then people respond, no wonder, say, well, I think my life is just fine as it is. Thank you very much. No, your life is not fine. You're dead in trespasses and sin. But now let me tell you about the remedy. This is the gospel. This grace, this unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor which saved us has been made operative in our lives through faith. There's the third word. Grace is the objective basis of our salvation. Faith is the subjective means by which it is received. Faith is the vehicle by which God dispenses His grace it's a vehicle by which he saves us. This is critically important. Just because Christ died for the sins of the world doesn't mean everybody in the world is saved. We, we get that. A person is saved when they believe, when they have faith. Inherent in that idea of that word is trust. When they trust in who Jesus is and what he did for them. I, I could say it this way: Christ's death is universal in its provision, but it is not universal in its application. You must believe to be saved. Now, I've been using the word believe and faith almost interchangeably, and, and, they, and they almost are. You see, faith is related to believe. Faith is the noun. Believe is the verb. We believe, that's the action, we exercise faith, trust, thereby receiving God's grace Leading to salvation. Now, Paul makes it clear throughout his writings that faith itself is not a work. Just because believing is a verb, it's an action, doesn't mean it is a work. Faith is simply belief, it is trust, believing that God sent his Son to die for the sins of humankind. And believing that having died for our sins, God raised Him from the dead, can't help at this at this moment to think of uh, of Paul's letter to the to the Romans. Got a couple of verses, but even as I share those verses, I just want to—we're not looking at the whole masterpiece of Romans. We're looking at a, We're looking at the eye that, that says real well here what Paul is talking about. Romans chapter ten, verse nine says this: If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you'll be saved for with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation you see this idea of heart belief the heart is is who a person really is that's what that's what Paul is saying with everything in you and everything that you are you exercise faith or trust that, that, that Jesus is Lord, that's an description of deity, that He's God, and that He died on the cross for you, and that when after He died, He was raised from the dead, and, and believing that you are w- with your heart, with your whole being, you're saved, you're delivered from sin and it's judgment, by God's unmerited grace that He gives through our faith. Now, three words. Paul goes on to say, this is the gift of God. Here's the, the very, very important question. What is the gift of God? I mean, is it salvation, or is it grace, or, or is it faith? Without going into the, all the technical grammar, trust me when I say that gift, the gift here is referring back to the whole thing. Salvation by grace through faith is all a gift from God. Grace, even faith leading to salvation, are all gifts from God so that in the end it will all be about God. In the end, it will point back to the artist. That's how salvation is accomplished. My simple question for you this morning is, have you, have you believed the gospel? Have you believed that Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross for your sins, turned from your, repented, turned from your sins, and asked Him to be your Savior? Have have you believed that? It, it, It might be that you haven't. Because you're trusting in not Him, but yourself for your salvation. You're trusting that you're a pretty good person. If this is the case, as is the case with most people on the planet, even in other religions, then Paul has some words for us. He takes some time to talk about how salvation is not accomplished. And this is one of the main emphases in these verses. He draws a stark contrast between faith, and works, between what God does and what you do. You see, one produces salvation and one doesn't. Notice, in fact, that he says it twice just to make sure that you get it in verses 8 and 9. Salvation is not of yourselves. Salvation is not a result of works. We could say it this way salvation is not a matter of of human initiative. It isn't something that you initiate, it isn't something that you do. Salvation is not a reward for human works. There is nothing in you, nothing that you can do to save yourself. You bring nothing to the table. Some of you have been trying all of your lives to get God to notice you, to get God to like you by the good things that you do. Human performance does not result in God's approval. You see, you have two very significant problems. First, while we may have Some so-called good works, here's my question, just exactly how many good works does it take to offset our bad ones? We call those sins. How many good works? Are are, are you betting on that? Are you betting on that you've been a pretty good person and that if you'll just do X number of good deeds that it'll offset your, your bad ones and God will be okay with you? Good luck with that. Because I want to remind you that God's standard is perfection. And so as you put on the balance, as you put your good deeds on one side and your bad deeds, maybe it's just one. It'll tip the scale because His standard is perfection. Second problem that you have, even our so-called good works are tainted by sin because we are sinners by nature. And and so, no one could do enough good, sin-tainted deeds to be saved. It must all be of God. Taken in its fuller context, we begin to understand that salvation, every bit of it, grace, and even faith, is of God. Without His active work in our lives, we would never be saved because we are dead, it's, it's not like we were, now listen to this, I'm serious about this, it's not like we were mostly dead. Like, but like that somewhere in there was some reservoir of goodness, some reservoir of righteousness, some ability to believe. It, it was all God's initiative. It even took the work of the Spirit of God in our lives to exercise faith so that In the end, it is all of God, so that in the end, no one can boast. Since there's no human merit, there can be no human boasting. Of what? Here's my question. Of what would we boast? Good works? Never. Don't have any. Oh, well, of my faith? Never. It wasn't your faith to begin with. You see, some people think that I'm going to get to heaven, and I'm going to thank God for His grace, and I'm going to thank me for my faith. No, you aren't. It's all His. It's a gift of God. Our only boast is in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's why Paul finished the book of Galatians with the words, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. To quote John Stott, we shall not, yeah, there we go, we shall not be able to strut around heaven like peacocks. Heaven will be filled with the exploits of Christ and the praises of God, period. You will bring nothing. That only gets us through verses 8 and 9. Actually, verses 1 to 9. We've been reminded that we bring nothing to the table. We've been told that God has made us alive in Christ, we've been saved by grace through faith. There were, there were no works, no good works that we had to offer, so is that it? Is that, is that the end of it? Is that the end of the, of the story? N- n- no. That's, that's not the end of the masterpiece because verse 10 very intentionally follows. For, and that's a conjunction, for we, those of us who have been saved by grace through faith, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Paul now begins to spell out further that this is all of God because now he's going to say it's, we are his creation. In fact, the word his comes first in the sentence for, for emphasis. His workmanship we are. It almost sounds like Yoda. The, the, the word workmanship is, is the word poema from which we get our word, our English word But it doesn't just refer to poetry, uh, although it includes that. It speaks of any created work of art. And maybe it it could be translated, maybe your translation has it, masterpiece. For we are His, or His work of art, His masterpiece, we are. Do you know that that word only appears one other place in the New Testament? the word poema, And it's in Romans, same author, Romans chapter 1, verse 20. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, he is speaking of God's um, creation, the the, the marvelous masterpiece of His universe, the earth, the stars, the planets. And you can look at that, and all the heavens declare the glory of God. That's what David said. And, And Paul says you can look at the universe and tell that there's a creator. Tell that this is magnificent. You can tell that there's a God. But now Paul takes that same word and uses, uses it to talk about you. You are his masterpiece, just like the universe. <sighs> Saint Augustine said, "Men go abroad to wonder at the height of mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the season, at the circular motions of the motion of the stars, and they pass." By themselves without wondering. Like creation. We are his masterpieces. But remember. The painting. The poem. The sculpture. The pottery. Every bit of it points to the artist. We are his made so by his creative work. We're a piece of art. A art, a treasure, a trophy because of His work in us. Paul is making it clear again that this is all of God. So far he has described salvation in terms of resurrection from the dead. He's described it as liberation from slavery, as rescue from condemnation. Every one of those ideas says it took God's work alone to free us. Dead people cannot bring themselves to life. Uh, 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 captives cannot free themselves. Those condemned cannot overturn the verdict. And, and now Paul speaks of us in terms of creation. Salvation is new creation. Let me ask you a question. What part did creation play in its existence? And you're sitting there going, oh, I know the answer to that one. It's the Big Bang. Wrong. Matter, no matter does not bring about Matter. It took a creator. It took God. Creation, creation language is nonsense unless there's a unless there's a creator. And, and and Paul says God created us. We didn't have any part of it in Christ Jesus, in and through the work of His Son on the cross new creations that familiar verse 2 Corinthians 5 therefore if anyone is in Christ he's a new creature a new creation old things are gone new things have come new creations because of the work of Christ but but but, but now notice the verse doesn't end there we we've been saved by his creative act and aren't saved by our own works but we're saved to do good works Not saved by good works, but we're saved to do good works. No amount of our supposed good works could do anything about our dead condition, but once we've been made alive, new expectations and new ability. Dean and I were talking about this this week, and he he said something I really, really love. He says, we need to make sure that our good works are on the right side of the cross. I, I like that. We don't do good works to be saved. We do good works because we are saved. Good works aren't the ground of our salvation, but they are the fruit of our salvation. Now we're talking about, now we got verses 1 to 10. Now we got the full gospel. James chapter 2, a very familiar passage. What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? That is, this this faith that doesn't have corresponding works, does that save him? Ah, That looks like a problem. That's not what Paul says. He describes it. If a brother or sister is without clothing and and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? So, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Still dead. You're still corpses. Being by itself. You go, that's a little confusing. Looks to me like James and Paul are at odds. That James is teaching that works are necessary for salvation. No. Paul and James are not at odds. James is saying exactly what Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Faith alone saves, yes. But a faith that saves is never alone. The New Testament is full of this truth. Paul is full of this truth. Titus chapter 3, familiar passage. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. These are going to be familiar words. But according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration that's being made alive and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's, that's just like he said in, that's just like Ephesians 2, 1 to 9. But verse 10 follows, and verse 8 follows here. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. We prove the reality of our faith by our works. That's what James is saying. Again, good works don't save us, but they prove that we are saved. Get your works on the right side of the cross. And I also want to say very gently but very firmly, if there are no good works after salvation, you likely are not saved. I, I don't like, take it up with James. That's what he said. Because Paul says These works were prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. God has a to-do list that He wrote down for you beforehand. When is beforehand? It's probably just like Ephesians 1, 4. Before the, the creation, before the foundation of the world, He chose us to be holy and blameless. How are we going to be holy and blameless? How is that going to be seen? By the good works that we do. Paul doesn't identify the works, um, but, but very likely those actions are governed by the fruit of the Spirit, okay? Good, good, good deeds are governed by, here's the question I want to ask you, I'm going to quote them, here's the question I want to ask you, do they describe you? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Does that describe you? He says, these are something that we walk in. The other side of that includes you. They define us. They characterize us. They are our way of life. Before we walked in darkness and sin. Now we've been made alive and we walk in light and goodness. I'm going to finish with this. Paul describes. I think he gives us a list in Colossians chapter three. I'm not going to. Uh, I'm just going to read it. Not going to elaborate much on it. But um, you, you want your to-do list? Colossians three. Here it is. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. You were dead. And God made you alive. So these are the things that you used to walk in—sins and trespasses. This used to characterize your life. Not anymore. Put them to death. Okay. This is how you used to walk in immorality, and that word speaks of sexual immorality. Stop walking in sexual immorality. You say, "But, but, but," Paul didn't have the internet. When I don't care. We don't walk in sexual immorality or impurity, or, or, or passion, or evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. It's because of those things that the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Does that sound familiar? We saw that in Ephesians 2. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. This used to define, describe your life. But, but, but now you also put them aside, and then He wants to throw in a few more. Uh, uh, anger. Wrath, malice, slander, abuse of speech from your mouth. Does this describe you? What what would your what would your kids say? What would your spouse say? Anger, malice, wrath, slander, abuse of speech. Uh do not lie to one another. You've laid that aside with its evil practices. You put on the New self, is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created us. See, it's the same context. Verse 12, so, as those who have been chosen of God, be holy and blameless, holy and beloved, put on, here's your to-do list. You want to know the good deeds that you're supposed to do? Here's a good start. Put on a heart of compassion. Kindness. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you. You should do the same. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. There's your list. There's the good deeds that we're supposed to walk in as followers of Christ. What a great description. I close this morning. I'm going to ask you two very simple questions. Two very simple questions. First, have you been saved by grace through faith? Have you believed the gospel, the good news, about what Jesus has done for you? And and, and second, does your life prove that? Are you walking? That is, is your life characterized by good works? Those good works that God prepared in eternity past when He made His to-do list for you. Are you doing it? You can by the power of the Spirit. Let's stand for prayer. Father, um, we come before you again this, now this afternoon and, and we've seen the gospel. We've seen its incredible need because we were dead, trespasses, sins and I suspect that there may be still dead people here who've never believed the gospel, have never trusted their lives to Christ. So my prayer is is that you would grant grace by your Spirit, make people alive so as to believe the good news about Jesus. And Father, for those of us who know you, we we, we look at that list of things that we're supposed to have put off and some look all too familiar. And we look at some of those things that we're supposed to have put on, and they, and they don't look familiar. Fill us with the fruit of the Spirit so that we are people of love and compassion and humility and gentleness and patience, well, that we're just people of grace. We pray this in Christ's name.